Hi, I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir. Today, we're revisiting an important conversation about food equity and access. In 2015, Kathy Eden and H.L. Schaefer published $2 a day living on almost nothing in America. That book explored the rise of families with children experiencing extreme low-cash incomes following the 1996 welfare reform. The book was a landmark ethnographic study of how families in extreme poverty ended up there and how they survived. The reality is that this crisis still exists in our country. In this 2018 episode of Add Passion and Stir, we spoke with Kathy Eden and Tom McDougall, the founder of 4P, an organization helping farmers in the D.C. region. The organization helps them thrive by providing access to new markets and ensuring equitable access to the food that they produce. We're revisiting this conversation because Eden and McDougall eloquently argue for more equity in social programs and a more dignified way of serving those who are poor. And now we bring you our conversation with Kathy Eden and Tom McDougall. This is the Share Our Strength podcast about people who are changing the world. We have a great conversation today with Kathy Eden. I've been doing this work for a long time. One of the things I, I could say has changed is that people really have lost. A lot of poor folks have lost their connection to, to food and to cooking. And Tom McDougall. I think it's, it's that idea that food really touches everything. That's the reason why I've kind of committed my life to a career in food and food systems change. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir. We hope that you will not only listen, but that you will search for Add Passion and Stir. And when you're there, that you'll rate, you'll review, and you'll subscribe so that all of your friends can know how you felt about what you heard here today. Uh, we've got a terrific conversation lined up today. We've got Kathy Eden, who has written a number of books in her role as a researcher on poverty in America. But her most recent book, $2 a Day, Living on Almost Nothing in America, has really taken off and just made a world of difference in the space where we work. Kathy, thanks for being with us. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Uh, and with Kathy, Tom McDougall, who has uh, been in D.C. for about 10 years, he tells me, but throughout close to three years ago, uh, started an organization called 4P Food, which he will describe. And as I say, his passion in terms of getting healthy, sustainable food that is good for you in every way and good for our planet, uh, I think is tied in many ways to the work that uh, Kathy is uh, doing and researching and the work that we're doing at Share Our Strength. And of course, I've got my sister Debbie Shore here as well, co-founder of Share Our Strength and somebody who's been engaged in many of these conversations. Great to be here. Kathy, I want to start with you. Uh, tell us a little bit about, I know you've written a number of other books. How did this uh, revelation and this book come to pass? Wow. Um, this book was a real surprise. So I started, um, you know, talking with, with poor folks about um, how they were getting by almost 30 years ago. It's hard to, it's hard to you know, even think that it's been that long. But uh, my first book was really written before welfare reform. And I looked at how people survived on a system that paid you, even back then, too little to survive. You know, I got a lot of media attention for that book. And I went on to study really the family and housing. So I kind of had left sort of the economic survival strategies world behind. And, you know, what's scary, I guess, is how easily I could have missed this. And we all could have missed the fact that the cash welfare system is just imploded in the United States, leaving, you know, about 3 million, um, 3 million kids in households living on less than $2 per person per day, really um, you know, a, a sort of a de developing world uh, standard. It's ironic. No one had even bothered 
to look to see if if we had families living um, you know under two dollars a day, this global standard for the developing world, uh, because people just assumed the number would be zero. Kathy, one last thing I want to ask you before we turn to Tom McDougall is uh, you talk about cash welfare system. So what did cash welfare look like before welfare reform in terms of what families had and what does it look like now? And was welfare reform in 1996, was that the pivot point? You know, Yes and no. <laughs> so, and the reason I ask is if, yeah. if you grew up in the last 20 years in America, you may not even know you what cash welfare know. is. That's right. That's, that's right. a term that we know, but yep. not everybody yeah, knows. And yeah. it, so prior to 1996, if you could show need, you had the legal right to get assistance from the government, a check. Now, the system was terrible. It treated people like crap. They felt ashamed to be on it. Uh, people would do almost anything to avoid it. But nonetheless, if you were really destitute, you got a check. The average state back then paid about uh, $450 a month for a mom with three kids and and no other income. So obviously, this didn't even cover the rent. And that was what my first book was about. But but there, it was a floor. And uh, what happened prior, past, after 1996 and continu- continues to happen is that we made cash welfare a block grant. We gave it to states. We said, you know better than we do. And we took off, we took away the entitlement. And what states unfortunately have done since that time is they've essentially used this as a flexible funding stream, a, um, a slush fund for all of the other things they want and need to do. So every year, less and less of this money gets to poor families. Now, uh, you know, the vast majority of that block grant goes to things like college scholarships, crisis pregnancy centers, child the child welfare systems of states, so states' governors don't have to pay for that out of taxpayer revenue. Yeah. Kathy, we had uh, USDA Secretary Tom Vilsack, um, the, the most recent USDA Secretary, uh, speak to a group uh, a couple weeks ago, and one of the things he was concerned about is this conversation about potentially block granting SNAP, the, the food stamp program. And he said, you know, he said, I've been governor of a state, Iowa, in his case. And he said, trust me, as a governor, when you get a block grant, you are not going to use it for what it was designated for if you don't have to, because you've got all your own projects and others in your, on your team have their projects. And he says, there's just no way that, you know, as many states that need to will use SNAP as intended if it's block granted. So pretty much what you just said. That's right. He testified as a, as a former governor who'd been on the other side of that. Yeah, and we know there's a lot of evidence that when kids don't get food, uh, like at the end of the month when SNAP runs out, their, their, their grades plummet, their cognitive ability uh, tanks. Uh, we don't need more evidence that kids uh, need food. Well, uh, Tom McDougall, as Kathy was talking about kind of the revelation that led her to this research um, on $2 a day. Um, I'm, I'm guessing that there was a revelation for you as well, because I know that you were involved in community-supported agriculture and a number of things having to do with the food system. But at a point just a few years ago, you decided to put a stake in the ground and say, uh, as a food activist, I think there's a way that we can actually change this system. And of course, you know, in this conversation and at our work at Share Our Strength, one of the first pressures that you find on many families who are poor or low income, however you define it, of course, is food. Um, You've got a vision uh, and it's built into the name 4P Food of 
purpose, people, planet, and profit, not just profit like some food companies. Tell us how you came to start this company. It was inspired partially from where I come from in, in, in upstate New York. I grew up you know, working on a farm and uh, food was a big thing in my family and my mom's an incredible cook and so much so that I almost became a chef and, and went to culinary school and, and instead didn't uh, and, and went down the path of international business uh, and went to school for business. And uh, my first career after school uh, really had nothing to do with food, nothing at all. Uh, I was working for small business here in D.C. that sold promotional products. So anything that's got a logo on it, right? These mugs and pens and hats and T-shirts. If you went to a Nationals game sometimes in the mid-2000s, you got a curly W hat, there's a decent chance I made it for you. Uh, but half the job was sales, um, and the other half of the job was going back and forth to China to source the factories that make all this stuff because that's where all of the pens and T-shirts and USB drives of the world are made. Um, and it was one of my last trips there where the, the true definition of an externalized cost in a global system kind of sank in with me because I was there doing a pen project. You know, the pens are six cents. And that was the price. But, but what really is the cost? And as I'm walking around a factory and, and seeing that there's a pipe out the back end that's going into fields, it's going into streams, it's probably unregulated, and there's a dorm right next door where these people are living because it's a 20-hour-a-day job for very little money, it's these are the costs. These are the costs on our collective environment. These are very real costs on their society and on their health. And uh, so a Big Mac, for example, uh, is grown – uh, is, is, is produced by beef cattle that are raised in CAFOs, which are centralized animal feeding operations. Uh, and they have horrific runoff that goes generally into the Mississippi River, which has created an, a ginormous, uh, ginormous isn't the right word, an enormous dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, and, and that is environmental degradation that we all are collectively paying the price of. The corn that was produced somewhere likely in Iowa, to feed that cow that's in the centralized animal feeding operation. That corn is there, uh, grown in a way that is laden with pesticides, and the people that are applying those pesticides have much higher rates of cancers because of that exposure to chemicals. That also is a cost that lands somewhere in our healthcare system's budgets, um, but it's not in the price of the Big Mac. So there are externalized costs. The true cost of that Big Mac should probably be more like $14 and not 4 uh, but it also is indicative of the potentially positive externalized cost of smaller scale sustainable agriculture. If we think about you know, a kale salad uh, here locally that might cost you $12, that's the price. But what about the positive cost of so carbon sequestration because it was grown using uh, organic practices locally uh, that's pulling carbon out of the air because the soil is so much better at absorbing that carbon? What about the fact that the uh, carbon emissions to transport at 14 miles versus 1,400 miles are dramatically less. Those internalized costs, positive externalities, if you will, uh, of, of smaller-scale sustainable production are also not captured. So it's sort of this paradigm shift of how we do accounting. Uh, and and this, is, this is a conversation that's happening at a much bigger level when you talk about climate change and uh, carbon taxes versus cap-and-trade. Versus We're trying to sort of figure out how can we put a price on some of these externalized costs but it's a, it's a slippery, in-depth conversation. We are so grateful for our partner, the Arby's Foundation, and the incredible support they've shown us during the last 10 years. Over the last decade, the Arby's Foundation has generously contributed nearly $30 million to help end childhood hunger in the United States. And through their in-restaurant Make a Difference campaign, the Arby's Foundation continues to spread awareness and raise significant funds for the No Kid Hungry campaign. 
Thank you to the Arby's Foundation for being such great partners. I somewhat joke that that triggered my quarter life crisis where I was like, oh, no, uh, this is an interesting job, but I uh, I'm not part of the solution. And one could even argue that I'm part of the problem. Uh, so I came back and I quit uh, and started to search for how am I going to plug back in? Um, and, and, and the first thought was, well, I'm going to be a farmer. I know I want to get back to food. And the CSA thing is awesome. And CSA, talk a little bit about what that is for people who don't know. Sure, yeah. Um, Community Supported Agriculture is the acronym. They really took off in the early 90s um, as, as a pushback towards the trend that, that accelerated rapidly in the 70s, which in agriculture was get big or get out. Uh, and that was when you saw the explosion of the number of SKUs in grocery stores, and we had the invention of Dunkaroos, which I love Dunkaroos, but I'm not sure what they're made of. Um, in the early 90s, a lot of families in various agricultural communities started to say, well, I, I really like that farm down the street, and I don't want them to go out of business, so let's support them. And so the way that traditional CSAs work, and there are roughly 13,000 of them across the country, um, is you find a farm. So our, our farm was just outside of Frederick, Maryland. Uh, Farmer Steve, awesome guy. Uh, and every year at the beginning of the season, we would cut Steve a check, and we were effectively buying a share in his farm that year. Uh, it was great. In theory, it was this wonderful, romantic thing. I got cooking again. I, I moved away from ramen noodles and, and <laughs> back towards good, healthy stuff. Um, so there were some, some hiccups with my fair weather friends who loved the idea of the farmer's market, but don't necessarily go. Um, so you, in effect, kind of reinvented the CSA, the Community Supported Agriculture, through 4P. Uh, I don't want to take credit for that because we borrowed from other ideas and other models of other folks doing this. Um, our, our purpose is to simply build on the principles of what CSAs are because they really are the best way to support your local farmer. If a farmer is running their own CSA, do that. But if you're not doing one, we're sort of the CSA on training wheels. Uh, <laughs> and, and we are trying to make it easier for consumers to support the local farming community so much so that it becomes the norm to eat healthy seasonal local food. Right now it's the exception and that's sort of a paradox of our system that we're trying to address. And is what you're doing, because I want to tie this to what Kathy was talking about, is what you're doing something that um, that middle income people can afford, that low income people can also afford, or is it just for um, kind of, you know, those who are privileged enough to be able to, you know, get vegetables, know what to do with them. One of the things we struggle with all the time at Share Our Strength is lots of families who, have, who haven't even seen certain types of fresh produce because they live in food deserts and so forth. So how does, you know, who's the target audience for what you're doing? And Kathy, how would you think about, you know, how we make that a larger target audience, I guess? For sure. Yeah. Great question. Um, it, so we're a benefit corporation. You were kind of talking about the four P's and the purpose of that. Um when we first started, our, our, our mission is and always has been and ideally always will be to, one, support local farmers that are using sustainable practices, making the, the soils and the water and the air better and make it easier for people to support them. And two, uh, make it so that the kind of food that they raise and produce is accessible to everyone, regardless of income, race, zip code. Um, so let's do that. Let's just change the whole system, right? Um, about a year and a half into our model, uh, originally our model was uh, for every 10 bags that we were delivering to people uh, who were paying full price, we would take one bag, set it aside, and then donate it to one of our partners that was doing emergency food relief, whether it's a food bank or YMCA or whatever it was. Um, and about a year and a half into our, our model, I realized that's not nearly enough uh, because our customers that are paying full price are rich white people. 
And it's not because they're necessarily the target market. It's because they're the ones that can afford it because we have a gap. We have a delta between, on the one hand, we need to, we should, we deserve to pay our farmers a price where they can survive and thrive. But on the other hand, we also need to get the food into the underserved communities at a price that's less than that. How do we cover that delta? And, and you know, this one in 10 thing was an idea, but it's a tithe, it's a tax, and it doesn't really talk about why do we even have emergency food relief to begin with? It's important because there's a huge gap there, but what about the systemic failures that, that led us to that? So where I, I hope to go with this model is to continue supporting our farmers the way that we are and continue serving the consumers that we are, but it, it will take, it begs the question of what is the role in government and policy in some of these things? Uh, how, how can someone like me, an online retailer, accept SNAP? How can we plug into things like Wholesome Wave and get some of those uh, double dollars? So, yeah. uh, and, and, and I think you're exactly right. If we yeah. can, then we can both address rural poverty in farming communities and urban access to food. Right. Kathy, as we were talking about um, underserved populations, particularly when it comes to food, um, tell us a little bit about what you're seeing, because one of the things that I think is makes your work so special is you're not just crunching numbers, although that's an important part of it. Um, you're what I think of as kind of bearing witness. You're going into pantries. You're going into, we were talking earlier about disability law firms. You're going into communities. You're walking the streets. Um, what are you saying in terms of families struggling with uh, food? Because that's got to be one of the, that's got to be one of the first things that gets traded off when they're, when, when times are tough. So there's a, food is huge and, and uh, ironic, I would say. Um, because when, you know, when you can't find a job, when you can't get on uh, the cash welfare system in your state, um, your food stamps will go up by about a quarter for every dollar uh, that you lose. Uh, the problem is, is that you can't buy socks and underwear for your kids with food stamps. So we've created this really weird economy, right, where the only resource families have uh, in any, in, you know, about 80% of families who are eligible actually get food stamps is, 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 the, is the, food, the food stamps. And and uh, when they uh, have to pay uh, the heat bill, I remember Alva Mae Hicks in, in uh, the Mississippi Delta, a little town in the Mississippi Delta, uh, you know, she had uh, a dozen kids. And uh, there in the Delta in the last six months, the first time I talked to her, she told me that the, the temperature had uh, been uh, ranged from 9 to 109 degrees. And if she did not pay this utility bill, you know, I mean, Everything kind of fell apart for the family. No lights, uh, no heat, no source of cooling uh, for all of those people in this tiny two-bedroom apartment. Actually, the kids, uh, half the kids slept on a rug, uh, also a trash pick rug on the floor, and the other half um, laid sideways on a twin bed. This is how this, this family was sleeping. But in order to, you know, this is the hungriest family I ever met, and, and I think the story kind of exemplifies the irony. So she was trading off $600 in SNAP benefits to pay this $300 utility bill, which meant that about a week and a half into the month, the food stamps ran out. Now, all families face this to some degree because the food stamp program is predicated on the idea that you're supposed to spend some of your own money on food. So... It is on purpose that the food stamps <laughs> run out. They weren't meant to cover your whole food bill. So virtually all families find that they run out. We know this from, you know, uh, electronic benefit transfer records. They run out about 
uh, two and a half to three weeks of the month. But this family and families who do sell their SNAP are running out much earlier. So uh, especially in the summer when there's no school breakfast and lunch program, these are hungry, hungry, hungry people with hungry kids. And, of course, the cheapest food you can buy is ramen. And uh, I, for a while I thought I was going to write a recipe book based on all of the creative ways people <laughs> were using uh, and cooking uh, ramen. And, of course, the, the health implications are really scary uh, when you're eating nothing but ramen day in and, and day out. Um, but Tabitha Hicks in the book is a, is a young lady that is incredibly hungry. And, and the, the, the gym teacher at school notices her. She's very attractive. And, and at 15, he inboxes her uh, on Facebook. And he says, I've been watching you since you were young, waiting for you to mature. He then invites uh, Tabitha to his house after school with the promise of food if she'll have sex with him. And, you know, she's, she does it. She does it. Feels so degraded. But the idea is she can bring a little home for her brother, you know, so he won't cry himself to sleep at night. And, mm. You know, when I asked her what it felt like to be that hungry, she... Uh, I'll never forget it. We were sitting um, outside uh, uh, the old Woolworths, which is now a fancy um, coffee shop in Clarksdale, Mississippi. And sun was just going down, and I said, so Tabitha, what does it feel like to be that hungry? And she said, it feels like you want to be dead because it's peaceful being dead. Uh, finally, uh, she can't live with herself anymore, and she tells another teacher, and this guy, uh, we write about it in the book, is utterly unstoppable. So he, he figures out not only that Tabitha's in this situation, but that she's really being uh, in danger of being abused at the hands of her stepfather. So he uh, calls around and finds a boarding school outside of Memphis, uh, gets Tabitha a scholarship, gets all of his friends and relatives to help pay whatever the scholarship doesn't cover, and she's literally lifted out of this situation into this private boarding school uh, in Memphis. Now, you can imagine uh, you know, going to public school in Mississippi, uh, small-town Mississippi. Her math skills were way behind, and she had to do all this remedial work to actually graduate from this school. But, but she did, and, and in some ways, you know, it was so remarkable um, to, to have that distance and to be able to think about her her life. She's one of the most articulate people I've ever interviewed, and I think in part uh, it was the fact that she, you know, had this really amazingly uh, small, tragic life, and she was sort of then put in a position where she could kind of look at her life from afar and really think about it uh, analytically from from a distance. So she was quite something, and as I said. She did graduate, uh, the first person in her family to graduate. Oh. Uh, she's in the middle of the pack with, with regard to the kids and a real role model to her younger siblings, and, and now she is in her second year of, of college. I've been doing this work for a long time. One of the things I, I could say has changed is that people really have lost. A lot of poor folks have lost their connection to, to food and to cooking. Uh, when I first started out, you know, I was in uh, Cabrini Green um, in Chicago, that notorious housing project you might remember. It's now torn down, but it was sort of the poster child of what went wrong with public housing. And I, I did a lot of my early work there. And 
every house had a, you know, unfortunately, a, a deep fat fryer and a can of Crisco on the stove, and people were cooking their own food. Uh, greens, you know, were in the refrigerator, and and the diets weren't always healthy, but people were really were really cooking, and they were, of course, bringing these cooking habits from the South. And they were only one generation usually away from from being in the South. Um, now, in a lot of poor households, uh, it's hard to find any cooking going on at all. Um, maybe in particular in doubled-up households where people are kind of hoarding their stash of food, keeping it locked in their room. Tom, Tom one of the things you've said about this <coughs> is that, or at least I think it connects to this, is that um, I read you saying that any honest conversation about equitable food has to include an honest conversation about racism and an on- honest conversation about uh Food equity. Yeah, and, and that uh, quote, to, to give accurate credit, is from uh, Navina Khanna, uh, who is a food justice activist out in California. She now is uh, helping to raise awareness around plate of the union, okay. and it's a lot okay. of these these issues. But yeah, indeed, uh, I, I, and I think it, it's, it's that idea that food really touches everything. That's the reason why I've kind of committed my life to a career in food and food systems change because. We can't talk about fixing the food system unless we talk first about money and politics. We can't talk about the food system unless we talk about subsidies. We can't talk about any of these things unless we talk about institutional racism and the history of farming in general and how that parlays into modern-day opportunity or lack thereof in our our basic capitalist system. Like It is all of these things, and it is inherently complex. To your point about cooking, there's education, there's opportunity – it is all of these things. So if we move the needle just a tad uh, on, on food equity and food access, then it means we're moving a lot of other needles along the way in the process. Um, you know, another one of my heroines here in D.C. is uh, Lauren Schwader Beal of D.C. Greens. And she very articulately uh, tells the story or sort of the, the analogy of early last century, and particularly in New York City, there was not access to water clean water, specifically in, in, in low-income neighborhoods. And we as human beings kind of got together and we're like, can't we all agree that water is a right? And shouldn't everybody have access to water, clean water, regardless of race or income or zip? Um, and the answer is yes. And policymakers and business builders and industry and uh, people in communities got together to make water happen. Uh, and she's asking, I think, a very pertinent, very accurate question is like, is that same time now for food? Can't we all agree that good, healthy food that doesn't kill us but actually nourishes us and our planet? Isn't that a right? And, and how do we do that? And it's going to take a similar kind of collective work with policymakers and, and business folks and community leaders to be able to pull that together. To, to really create a, 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 a movement around it, in effect. Yeah, I would argue that we're we are doing exactly that. Not not we, but sort of the proverbial way. People like you share our strength in, in books like this that is sort of creating and painting painting the pictures in a very articulate way, the way that you do, um, but also giving solutions on how it can be done for various communities around. I think we're we're in the middle of a movement. Maybe not the middle, but in the early stages of building it. Uh, Kathy, one of the things I think so powerful about um, your book, Two Dollars a Day, is your description of survival strategies that uh, individuals and families um, adopt or adapt to. Now, talk a little bit about what some of those survival strategies uh, have been for families, because I think most people don't realize the extent to which people go just to hang in there. Yeah, so uh, fascinating. And that's kind of a hopeful, I think, part of this experience is people are so creative. They're so inventive. 
Um, uh, so plasma is so common. Virtually everybody in our study sold plasma. And you can do it up to, uh, up to uh, eight times a month in the U.S. legally. Um, that's more than any other country allows. We've seen plasma sales since the welfare rolls have declined so dramatically. Uh, climb uh, in 2000, I think there were about uh, 10 million plasma sales in this country. Uh, and, and what's the and price for each uh, one? It depends, but you generally you get about $30. Um, but now we're at about uh, 35 million plasma sales. Uh, you you know if you if you go to uh, the plasma clinic on West Twenty Fifth Street in Cleveland, you'll see people lined up. Uh, we're doing uh, with some filmmakers uh, a documentary on two dollars a day, and they were just there at this plasma uh, clinic in the winter in Cleveland, cold day, and there was a woman waiting in line with no shoes. She's going to the plasma clinic to get shoes. So, you know, when people hear that you literally, in order to feed your kids, are selling your lifeblood, and even then you can't do it, I think that really gets to, gets to sort of middle-class Americans who, who don't really think about that. Uh, Paul Heckwilder is really a, quite an entrepreneur. You know, he's a young kid who came up in Cleveland working in the steel mills, lost a foot in a steel mill, made his own prosthesis. He's sort of uh, really been a, almost a survivalist. Uh, you know, throughout his life. Um, currently, you know, he's in this ho- house in Cleveland. At one point, there were uh, 23 of his relatives all doubled up in this tiny little house. Uh, when we first met him, there were beds everywhere. Uh, but he, he literally stockpiles all of the grains. He gets extra at food pantries and has this incredible system in the basement uh, for cataloging it all. Um, his His extended family is sort of slowly moved out and kind of got back on their feet, but he's waiting for the next crisis. He's also dug a 50-foot well in his basement and now can produce his own water. Because uh, one of the things in $2 a day we learn is what happens when 24 people are living in a house and the water gets shut off, what kind of crisis and entrepreneurship that requires. Uh, He also takes some, sometimes, you know, at the food pantry, uh, the produce isn't all that fresh. Uh, so he and the grandkids uh, plant victory gardens in the backyard <laughs> with with the spoiled um, with the sp- some of the spoiled food and and they've actually they're at last summer they grew beautiful eggplant. So we don't we're not very good at thinking about people who have really hard luck. And Paul's really had a lot of hard hard luck. He's no doubt made a lot of bad moves, but he was a successful entrepreneur whose pizza business was crushed by the recession. So you know that's that's bad luck. And, and yet he's he's constantly uh, in this incredibly perilous situation. Seems like one of the challenges we have in this country, and the, you know the recent election and all the comments about how polarizing and divisive it was, is that um, if you want to know stories like these, you can find them through two dollars a day or other other ways. But if you don't want to know them, you can go blissfully through your life without ever knowing them by curating your own social media feeds and what cable channels you watch and so forth. And I find that in our work, and I'm sure in both of yours, you know, how do you break out beyond the usual suspects who care about this to help uh, other people, Tom, know that there are options available for healthier eating, for supporting their community, for for knowing that there are people who are living in, in circumstances much more 
difficult than than themselves. I think it's a uh, it, it's kind of like almost like a you know political philosophical existential question that the, we all face in 2017 as uh, we try to figure out how to bring the country back together. If I knew the answer to that question, I'm in, be in the wrong career. But <laughs> I uh, what I can say just from a personal experience is thinking about what is the purpose of business and specifically what is the purpose of our business. I think is a question that, that we all could ask at a global level. Uh, what is the purpose of business and society? And if we begin to think about profitability beyond just balance sheets and think about profitability in the way that people in, say, Bhutan think about profitability with their gross national happiness as being a thing or the, the value that they put on the health of their environment and health of their communities, suddenly um, the way that we do balance sheets could change a lot. So let's do a commercial for 4P Foods while we're, while we're at it. What, if you're a consumer, what do you get? What's the, what's the value proposition, and why is it good for you, and why is it good for the community? I should have a really quick elevator pitch on that, but uh, basically, like I said, we are, we are a CSAN training wheels. We're for all the folks that, that know that the food system is broken in one way, shape, or form, but they are tremendously busy doing life to do something meaningful about it. They don't have the time necessarily to get to the farmer's market or do their own CSA, so um, come join us. Spend your food dollars with us. We spend 130, or we aggregate from 130 different small farms in the area. Uh, we buy from them every week, multiple times a week. We pack up their food for you, and then we deliver it to your home or your office. And the geography is this area in the Washington D.C. area, and will it eventually be? Are you going to help others do this? Are you going to do it yourself? It will eventually be everywhere. Currently, it is D.C., um, and, and I sure hope that a version of this is everywhere, kind of back to one of the first comments that was made, like good, transparent, sustainable food should be a right. It should be the norm, not the exception. Crappy food that's making the earth worse and killing people along the way, that should not be the normal thing. So, yeah, let's, let's create a better food system uh, that is baked in the ideas of equity. So that's kind of Tom McDougall's call to action. I've heard your book, Kathy, be described as a call to action. Uh, but as I read it, I think people can take away lots of different uh, points from it in terms of what needs to be done. From your point of view, what's the what's the call to action? If uh, we've got a new administration coming to town, we've got new uh, policymakers uh, coming to Washington, what action should they take if they're moved by $2 a day living on almost nothing in America? So maybe I'll say something that might be a little surprising. As, you know, we filed these 18 families for many months and years, um, it's kind of ironic. Not, not once did someone say, I want I want more handouts. You know, they said, I want more work. I want a chance to contribute to my community. I want to, I um, you know, shoulder my share of the responsibility. I guess when it comes down to it, what people want, seem to want more than anything else is, is, is dignity. They want to feel like citizens. They want to feel like members of their community. And, and a lot of our social policies systematically deny people that, you know. If you try to get cash welfare, you're made to feel ashamed. If somebody sees your EBT card, your SNAP card in the grocery store, they, they make judgments about you. You, um, and we make people go through inc incredible hoops to get benefits they can't possibly uh, live on. Uh, and then we criminalize anything they do to try to subsidize those benefits. But what if we didn't do that? What if every time we gave someone an apple in a food pantry, we looked them in the eye and, and made them feel 
normal, uh, like they were part of us. You know, um, a lot of poor people, in fact, the very vast majority of poor people do work about um, about uh, it's 80% of, of even the $2 a day poor um, over the course of a couple of years are, are in the formal labor market working. So a lot of them, um, you know, end up uh, getting a tax refund at the end of the year, and, and they often go to H&R Block. And H&R Block's got this incredible ad campaign that people talk about a lot. Uh, you've got people. You know, you go into the H&R Block and you're, you're treated like a customer. Uh, last year, the ad went... Uh, uh, our people are your people. And um, so I wrote another book about about these tax credits, and I hung out a lot at the H&R Block. And people would come out of there after, you know, paying this really high fee just to get a, you know, a couple thousand dollars back in a tax refund. And they'd say things like, I feel like a real American. You know, the, the experience of going into that office and being treated with respect like a customer, like a taxpayer, mm. was so meaningful to people. Um, so anyway, it really made me think that, um, there may be a different way of serving the poor that's much more empowering and, and respectful, uh, that, that could really kind of change the paradigm. Um, so, um, you know, I know a lot of the food, food movement actually gets community members involving, involved in producing the food themselves. I think this is really really important and meaningful. And, and the more we can kind of think about the poor as part of us and uh, as, as fellow citizens, I think the better mm-hmm. off we'll be. So uh, more efforts to shame the people, uh, uh, you know, the, the idea that you can shame people off of dependency uh, is actually not consistent with research. And, um, and maybe we should try something else. That's right. Yeah, and I would I would build on that. I think you know, there's, I mean, to your point about not shaming uh, people into independence, but rather the idea of empowerment. Uh, one of the the stakeholder groups we haven't talked a lot about is the funding community. People that make investments into businesses to empower entrepreneurs who may have had a failed pizza business but have really other good ideas. Um, it, it costs somewhere in the neighborhood of twenty to thirty thousand dollars to launch a business in the United States. The average black family has roughly $11,000 of wealth, and the average white family has $144,000 of wealth. And there is this playbook out of Silicon Valley that says, here's how you start a business. You start with your friends and family, you get some money from them, and then you start a business. If your friends and family don't have that $30,000, you may be the best entrepreneur in the world, but you can't do it. Nope. Uh, so, so what is the value to create new funding vehicles to invest in entrepreneurs in these communities who can help empower not only themselves but those around them uh, that is both a good investment in, in terms of dollars and cents, but a really good investment in rethinking how we are shaping communities and, and what things like tax breaks, for example, uh, ha- how that can go. And I see that even in our own business. We're fundraising right now, and some of the most receptive potential investors we've had conversations with are our customers because they see that very direct line. That if they yep. help us grow, they help double down on their impact. And if you've listened to any of the other podcast episodes of Add Passion and Stir, you know that food is connected to our health, to our education, to our educational achievement, to our ability to compete economically, ultimately to our national security. I mean, it's Indeed. really at the center of all these issues. You know, one of the things I'm thinking about, Kathy, as you talk about, you know, how to get people to think about this differently, the dignity question. And 
I don't know how many numbers are in each category, but there's a group of people that Billy were talking, Billy was talking about, um, who go through life and you know, they're just they're disinterested. But there's a lot of pe- there are probably more people who, if we could turn the light on, could come into this conversation because we've always believed at Share Our Strength that if you give people you know a way to share their strength, their passion, their talent, what they do for a living, for the greater good, they will make it easy. Give people a vehicle. Uh, and they'll get on it. Uh, we're, we're not concerned about the ones that won't, right? There, there, there's always going to be people that don't care, but there are a lot of people that do care. And I'd say probably the, the most common thing that we've heard at Share Strength over the last uh, 60 days since the November election wa- is, right. I want to get more involved. I've involved? been sitting on the sidelines. I need to get involved yeah. in my community. Some people mean it politically, some mean it civically, but there's an opportunity there that I think That's right. you, you know you really just right. put your finger on it yeah. to kind of create vehicles for people to really find ways, whether it's through the food system, whether it's through their local farm, whether it's through anti-poverty work, fair housing work, health care. Uh, people, I think, are waking up realizing, like, I've got to play an active role as a citizen. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. Please visit us at Add Passion and Stir, and don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcast. Share Add Passion and Stir with a friend and rate the show so that others can find it. Add Passion and Stir is produced by Paul Woody Woodle's team at District Productive, with support from our team at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry Campaign. That includes my sister, Debbie Shore, Pamela Taylor, Megan Cantrell, and Kelly Griffin. We'll be back in two weeks with more stories of individuals sharing their strengths to make a difference in the world. Until then, thanks so much for listening.